The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews is brought to you by Spirituality and Health Magazine, the Soul Body Connection. Visit SpiritualityHealth.com today. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Hi, and welcome to Authentic Living this afternoon. You know, though much of what we hear and see in media tells us differently, we here at the Authentic Living Show like to put forth the idea that the only way to live a meaningful life is to live in poignant touch with the soul. Thomas Moore, our guest for today, is an expert on the soul. With three videos, 10 audio recordings, and 18 books, including his original bestseller, Care of the Soul, and others such as Dark Night of the Soul, The Soul of Sex, The Reenchantment of Everyday Life, and The Original Self, Thomas Moore has enchanted us all. While he does not paint a pretty picture of happy ever after proportions, he urges us to consider the depths of existence, to be faithful to our original and unvarnished selves, to love deeply and with care for the soul. In his latest book, Care of the Soul in Medicine, he teaches both healthcare workers and patients to participate in matters of the soul as a part of the co-creative endeavor of healing and helping. This book was written after Thomas had participated in dozens of medical conferences, visited hospitals and medical schools in several countries, and interviewed every kind of worker from the CEO to the housekeeping staff of St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. And from this well-researched perspective, we're going to be talking today about health, your health, medical care, your medical care, and the soul, your soul. Welcome, Thomas. We're so glad to have you today. Thanks for having me, Andrea. You know, uh, this book that you have written, uh, uh, we were just saying this before the show came on, that it is so very well written, and I really want to urge our readers, to our listeners to read it, because it is, it's a very easy read. It's not filled with a lot of medical dogma, if you will, and it, and it, is, um, it really is enlightening as well. So we're just going to sort of rum- wander through some of the ideas that you presented in the book and talk about those with our audience today. Um, the first one I want to sort of put out there is one of the tenets of your book is that the body is the soul. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? Yes, I got that idea, that expression from the English poet William Blake, who at his time was trying to trying to counter some of the uh, mechanistic philosophies, the idea that a human being is a machine. And of course, we're we're still in that battle today. So what I'm saying with him is that when you look at the body, you're not just looking at something that is lifeless. You really can't look at the body of a human being without also seeing the human being. I mean, there's no way you can separate these two. You can distinguish them, you know, talk about the body and the physical life, uh, but you can't really separate them. Uh, And yet that's what our medical 
uh, world today tends to do because of the philosophy of the time. So I'm trying to get back to saying when you look at the body, remember the person that is there. And re- remember, too, that whenever you look at the body, it's a meaningful, uh, it's a meaningful thing. It, it's, it's, it's expressive, and it's related to the way people live and how they feel. Okay, so the body is a real important part, and we can't. And that idea that separating the soul from the body means we can pray over the body, but we don't really participate in the body when we're soul. So what you're saying is that really we have to treat the body as if it's us; it's part of the soul. Yes, exactly. It's it's part of us. Uh, a soul is what uh, traditionally people have said. Soul is what makes something alive, and gives it individuality. So uh, when someone examines us, let's say a doctor examines us, looking at our, 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 our belly or a headache or a heart or something, uh, they may think that they're just looking at this body part, that, like, an, like a part of an automobile. But there's no way that, that that body part is not also participating in the life that is there and the history, the long life that a person has lived and the, the, the meaningful work that person has done and the relationships they have. And if you don't take those other things into account, you're looking at a soulless, you know, hunk of meat essentially, and that is that's really not what a, what a human body is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that you talked about in the book that I thought was very interesting was the, the history of place with regard to how we can find soulfulness in healing. Um, you talked a little bit about how to create a soulful place in healing, and you co- compared some ancient uh, places of healing to our modern-day places of healing. I'd like to see if you can explore that out loud with with us here today. Yes, this is an area that I'm very much interested in. It's about the place of healing because if the place where you're going to be healed is not a healing place, then you're going to have to fight it all the time, and it won't be there supporting you. The place can heal uh, itself, and it can certainly help the doctors and nurses who are in that place. But unfortunately, when we look at our our hospitals and medical centers, often they are built mainly for efficiency. And uh, there isn't a sense that you are in a healing place. I mean, imagine if you you had to go to the hospital and you found yourself going into a place that as soon as you walked through the door, you felt relaxed, you felt taken care of, and you felt that there was such a healing place that you already began the process of healing before anyone did anything with you. Uh, but, you know, that's not the way the experience is. You walk into a hospital and immediately have to deal with finances. And then, you uh, you know, you see a lot of activity, and it doesn't look like a very healing place. It's been built to, to, so that everything can function well, but it's not built so that the, the patient can feel that they are now about to go into a process where they will be profoundly healed. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, was it Asclepius that you mentioned his, uh, the way he had a round building and there were lots of, of maze-like places, but they were all sort of going into a deeper place, like almost like the way I felt of it was like a labyrinth. You were... Well, yes, that's what it was like. Asclepius was the, the god of healing for the Greeks, and of course, as with all the gods, there were temples. The temples to Asclepius were particular, they were special. First of all, they were built in a special uh, place and on the terrain, so people made a very careful choice of where to put up the building, so that people could be uh, even just in the geography of the place feel that they were in a place of healing. And then uh, there were places for sleep, 
In fact, the word for the bed used in these temples was kline, which is the, from the word we got our, from which we got our word clinic. So there is that connection. And then they did have this round building, and nobody's really sure exactly what it was for. They call it a tholos, and it was uh, circular. And some people think that they, this is where the snakes were, because the snake was associated with healing and with the goddess Klepios. So if you looked at his statue, he would be usually sitting in a chair or standing, and there would be a snake. Sometimes the snake curls around the staff that he's holding, and that's what we use most of the time today for our image or symbol of healing. Yeah, so so what you're recommending is in to basically the healthcare industry is that we could create a safer, more soulful place uh to go for either both clinics and and hospitals. Yes, and I have very specific recommendations. So one thing I like to recommend is is that in in the place of healing that you have um access to nature and that you have the the elemental uh, uh objects of um Present I, by elemental, I mean something like stone, wood, uh, water, a light, air, fire, maybe iron, maybe um, tapestry, uh, fabric, that sort of thing. These natural qualities. Most of the time, you go into a hospital or medical center, and you see a lot of plastic and uh, or you know forged uh, uh, steel implements. But you don't see the you don't necessarily see much running water or stone. Some of these basic things, I think they're appropriate because when you get sick, you're really down to basics. That's when you have to your attention leaves all the work you've been doing and and all your activities, and you're down now to the fundamentals. Am I going to survive or not? And there's something about illness, of course, that is very very close to nature. It's almost as though nature now has the upper hand and, and will uh, will take care of you or will, um, you know, will let you get worse. So to have that relationship to, to very basic materials, I think, is a, makes for a very good environment for healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there any hospitals in the world, even the uh, more alternative healing organizations that do that? I've seen it here and there. Uh, there are some hospitals that are really trying. In fact, I mentioned one in the book, the, uh, the plane tree system, is very good at trying to make the environment much different from what uh, they normally are. They call their work patient-centered instead of, uh, you know, I guess, instead of doctor-centered or instead of uh, um, treatment-centered. They're really thinking about the person who's there to be healed. Um, they don't. They don't go, you know, all the way. There's, uh, I mean, they don't necessarily have all this elemental uh, material around, but they, they do a very good job of getting past some of the plastic uh, qualities of what, what is typical in a medical environment. I, I remember once visiting uh, a hospice in, in Ireland uh, where um, when they built the hospice, there was a stream nearby, and they actually let the stream flow in through the building. So as you walk through the building, you go over these little bridges, and the water is flowing through. Now, there's something about flowing water that has to do with flowing life. And there's some, you know, just uh, being alive, uh, having that, uh, that spring of vitality in you. And to have that in, their, in your hospital, it sounds to me like a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love the concept of being close to nature. We talk about, you know, going out in nature to heal our, our hearts when we're hurt or that or to heal the soul when we're troubled about something but 
we we don't typically think about it in terms of healing the body, but that is that's so rich. And it's awesome. Well, I think a lot of people feel this just naturally, you know, just uh, intuitively. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that same place I was mentioning in Ireland, where mm-hmm. I, that I visited and, and uh, spoke at once, uh, had um, each bed in the hospital was in a sort of a bay window, so that all the patients, were, when they were in their beds, were out into the pasture that was outside the hospital. Wow. And there were horses and kept in that pasture, so they would come to the window of the hospital. Uh, and the animals are, are, I think people are beginning to understand today that animals can be very helpful when it comes to healing, so that today some hospitals have dogs present. Uh, you know, used to, they used to worry about that for um, you know, bacteria and that sort of thing, but uh, they've got, they, 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 you know, they, have, they know how to deal with that today, and so uh, animals might be present. And uh, people who are very sick sometimes come out of themselves and get some hope when they are in touch with animals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And in that, in that vein, uh, you talk about receiving bad news, and that is the big thing that we're most afraid of when we go to the hospital or go to see a doctor is that we're going to get bad news. So we're going to talk about how a person might handle bad news soulfully when we get back right after the break. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. Think of the world. 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor and sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor and sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council.
You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back today with Thomas Moore talking about the, the care of the soul in medicine. This show is sponsored by Spirituality and Health Magazine, The Soul-Body Connection, one of America's most prestigious spiritual magazines, publishing six times a year and offering an amazing array of information for the seeker both in print and online. Check them out at www.spiritualityhealth.com. And Thomas, we said before the break that we would talk a little bit when we came back about how a person might be able to handle bad news soulfully, because that's one of the things that we all fear the most. So let's talk a minute about that. Yes, usually I find myself talking about uh, to doctors and nurses about breaking bad news to people. I mean, that's one side of the equation. And uh, they get a little bit of training for that. But uh, I always say that uh, if your job requires you to break bad news to people, that, um, uh, that you have to be a person, you have to cultivate that thing within yourself where you have some depth and some substance, and you bring it to your work so that when you have to deal with issues of life and death, you're not dealing with them at a distance, you know, that, that you, you can stand close to them and be a strong person and a and a rich person, and can give some confidence and hope to somebody that's real, that's not, that's not false, and yet be, be straight with people. Now, on the other side of the equation, when you're being given bad news, um, uh, that's usually a shock, and the shock is that you're faced with your mortality. Uh, I know what this is like. When I uh, had a, a heart procedure a few years ago, um, I uh, felt my mortality immediately, and all my thoughts went to my children and my wife and all these things, and, you know, life, uh, the work to be done, all, all of it. And um, I, I think that uh, uh, in, our, in our world, uh, our world of hospitals and medical centers and doctors, so much of the attention is on how to get cured, and there's very little attention given to how is a person going to deal with sickness. We all have to deal with it eventually and yet we're not really prepared for it. Uh, so specifically, I think that when a person, then a patient, is given bad news, they're going to have be faced with their mortality. Um, they have to be, I think, first of all, um, really honest with themselves with it. And I, I think it's all right to, to deny for a while. You know, people do get into a period of denial that is not that bad, and your family might. I don't think that we should say that that's a bad thing. Denial is in the, it's in the nature of things. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to do it too long because then you won't be really dealing with what's happening with you. So somehow to be able to, to take in the bad news and have a person or two that you're close to to talk about it with, that is really essential. Uh, again, I don't know if we realize how important it is to have someone that you can talk to openly and honestly and uh, and confess, you know, your feelings, what's going on. Uh, that's usually the most important thing because when people are given bad news, if they have to hold it in, uh, they get more and more anxious. Right, right. So the soulful the soulful way of handling this on the patient's part is to really 
let the process unfold in terms of its denial aspect, but 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 to 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 be able to go down to the level of the soul, I guess, and 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 uh, talk about that from that perspective. Yes, I think that it may take a while to get there. All these matters of soul uh, don't happen quickly. It takes a while, you know, just like it takes a while to, to, uh, for forgiveness to arise within you. You can't forgive something immediately. It's the same thing with uh, having to deal with bad news in a medical context. Uh, right away, uh, you don't have to expect uh, wonders and miracles from yourself. You know, you don't have to say, well, now, oh, I feel, you know, I, I have a profound understanding of my illness and I can deal with it. It may take quite a while. It may take weeks for you to get to the point where you are finally... Uh, absorbing it all and adjusting to the situation you're in. Mm-hmm. If you have that time, you know, to do it. But if you want to uh, work at it and if you want to speed that up or, or be, you know, participate in it actively, which I think would be a very good thing, then the thing to do is to be able to talk openly with your caretakers, the, uh, the uh, caregivers, the doctors and nurses, to be straight with them because... I know this from having interviewed so many doctors and nurses that they don't know what to say to somebody. They don't want to say something that's going to make them feel depressed or, or too too worried. Uh, they don't want to get you know, create a lot of anxiety. So sometimes they they back off, and and so I think the patient sometimes has to let the caregiver know that it's okay to talk to me. And by the way, I think in these situations it's wonderful to be able to sp- speak very clearly like that. Say the obvious. Say that, look, I know you probably are worried about me. You don't want me to get too excited or, or worried. I'm okay. You can tell me what's going on. And, or you could say, tell me the basics. I don't want to know all the gory details. And make sure you leave a little room for hope. I mean, that, that's okay, too, you know, to let the, your, uh, your doctor and nurse know who you are and what you're capable of, what you'd like from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of exchange really would be helpful. I remember one time, not too long ago, uh, I said to a doctor about a procedure that I was going to have done. I said, I looked at her and I said, I'm scared, and she just froze. <laughs> she just looked yeah, at me like, yeah. what am I supposed to do with that? So it was I real know. interesting. And I, I know. If I had been able to say some of this, the, uh, you know, tell me what's going on here and, you know, can you help me with this? Uh, it might have worked, helped, her, helped her get past her reservation as well. Well, unfortunately, the fact is, and everybody knows it, I think, doctors and even nurses are trained to be good technicians. They're trained and they can take care of your body and your illness very well. They have a great deal of compassion. Most of them that I have met most are, are, are really, their life is fulfilled when they can help somebody. And, and they're very, very, very attached to a person getting better. But they're not good at talking to people and they're not good at these very, very uh, you know, profound, deep uh, feelings uh, that come up when people are sick. So I'm afraid that one of the jobs of the patient then might be to help the the caregiver, mm-hmm. to let them know that that you're stronger than you look, that uh, you know that uh, that that you know what's going on, that that uh, uh, but you need some information, and you need uh, somebody with you taking care of you who's not afraid or 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 is not trying to be too uh, distant so that you don't disturb me. Just You, know, you, have, you have to say these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a real good point. Um, and, and back to the caregiver, uh, you know, I have had a couple of stints in a uh, uh, hospital, working in a hospital environment back when I was in college during the uh, summer vacations and also 
um, was raised in a very medical family. Uh, so uh, I was always taught that, you know, you just have to shut off your emotions if you're going to work with people that are in trauma all the time. And I, I have always wondered about that. And since I'm a therapist now, I work with people that are in trauma all the time and I haven't had to shut off my emotions I know that that's not necessarily a, a, a good coping mechanism, although it is one that's frequently used. So, so you know, what you're saying is, if the patient communicates something of him or herself and her the needs that they legitimately have to their caregiver, then the caregiver might be able to open up a little bit more to that other side. Yes, I wish you know I wish very much that the, that doctors and nurses and other caregivers could be educated more in the. Uh, more subtly about psychology, mm-hmm. they're given a, they're given a very little bit. You know, they're given I know hours or maybe a couple of days of training in how to talk to patients and how to be with them. But I can tell you from talking to so many of them uh, that uh, they, it's not nearly enough. It doesn't even come close. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's bad psychology to say that uh, that you should keep a distance in order to protect yourself and also the patient. I don't think it's good psychology because distancing usually doesn't accomplish anything. It's better to be become a person who feels comfortable with yourself. And when you're there with someone who is really going through a bad time, uh, you, you can be on solid ground and you, you, know, you can say, well, you can talk about things that are difficult. I think we all we all should learn this anyway. We have to deal with that with things like this with our children, and with relatives and spouses. I mean, families have to have to deal with these same issues over and over again. They're wondering what they should say to the, their family member who's sick. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need a lot of education in this. And uh, I, I've had very very good uh, doctors and nurses tell me the same thing that they they believe they should really turn off their emotions when they do certain work. And uh, it sounds very, you know, it sounds very sincere, but I don't believe it. I don't think it works very well. It's better to be someone who is so solid that you you can be open and you won't be knocked over and blown over by someone's, uh, uh, by someone being, suddenly having to face life and death issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if you become a doctor or a nurse or work in the medical world, I'm afraid that's what you're called to do. I mean, that's the nature of the thing. So, so you, you can't avoid it. Yeah, and I think we, we have this theory that if we feel the emotion of another person, we're going to have to carry it. That's true. That's a very good point. You don't have to carry it. And the other thing is, it doesn't mean that you have to be, you have to suddenly let the floodgates open and you're there with this person all the time and worried about them and, and uh, having to talk to them constantly. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that in the moment, let's say you've got three minutes with a, with a patient, while you're there, and if they ask you difficult questions, you could just be, be there solidly as a person and, uh, and give them that, that hope and courage that comes from being so uh, self-possessed. But as you said in your, your story, uh, a lot of times people say things like that to their, their doctors, and the doctor either runs away or looks scared or doesn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and that makes it harder. It makes it more scarier. More scarier? You like that more? <laughs> I would I would say more scarier, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> for, for the patient, because if the doctor can't handle it, it's like, oh, my gosh, this must be really bad. 
We yes, of that. course. Isn't that true? If if a doctor can't be with you, I mean, just imagine all the fantasies that spring to your mind mm-hmm. because you're in a state of anxiety to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, um, you've talked about illness as a positive passage, passage to awareness, and I want to spend some significant time on that because I think that's an extremely important part of what we're talking about today. So we're going to uh, take a break, and we'll come back and talk about illness as a positive passage to awareness. Stay tuned for more from Thomas More. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Create yourself first to create the life that you want. Join Dee Wallace, actress, author, and healer for Conscious Creation. She'll give you clear and concise answers to the blocks, beliefs, and fears that stand in the way of your self-creation. Are you ready to create your own life powerfully? Tune in to Conscious Creation with Dee Wallace, broadcast live every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. Love yourself, experience your power, acknowledge your value, and expand into your greatness. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back again with Thomas Moore talking about the care of the soul in medicine. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about illness as a positive passage to awareness, which I think is one of the most important sort of themes uh, for your book. And I, I really want to spend some time talking about that. So what do you mean when you say that illness is a positive passage to awareness? Well, first of all, I got that idea right from the patients that I spoke with. 
so many people told me that they they would never choose the illness. They never would want to have the illness they had, but they were better people uh, having had it, having gone through it. They they realized what was important to them. They realized who was important to them. They realized how important it was for them to resolve some of the conflicts in their lives with with certain people, family members, and other people. Um, they they also discovered what was impo- how uh, what was important about spending the time you have because when they got sick and when we get sick uh, they they were aware of uh, uh, the shortening time how little time there might be left for them to do the things they want to do or maybe should do to make them feel that their life meant something so you suddenly you get you get all these philosophical or theological thoughts from people who really didn't have them before and that came through their sickness and so that's what i mean by a rite of passage it's it's going down into something that's difficult and painful and fearful and you don't want it you wouldn't wish it on anybody but having gone through it you realize that it gives you something it makes you more mature and ultimately a better person and a deeper person it sounds like More yes reason. a deeper person yeah yeah, yeah I, and i think that that you know one of the things that is so perpetual not not just um in religious communities but in the new age new thought movement as well that that illness is a sign of something that you're you're not doing something right or you've been sinful or you're not doing the law of attraction right or something and that you should correct it immediately uh, in order to prove that you're you have value and there's that undercurrent that runs through when we get sick especially with a a major illness we 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 question ourselves in ways that complicate it i think can you speak to that yes yes years ago i began writing about medicine actually many years ago and i remember reading a, a little book um um on on medicine uh in which um um, uh, the author said that uh, the philosopher said that uh, that uh, it's not good to talk about meaning the meaning of an illness because it almost always turns to blame blaming the patient. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that a lot. I don't agree with it actually, although I understand the warning. You got to be careful. So that what you just described when someone says you must be doing something wrong to have had this illness. It's, that moralism doesn't help anybody, and who knows? You know, I mean, you have to be in sort of a godlike position to say something like that. Absolutely. So it's not a good. That's not the way to go. And yet, I think it's possible to look for meaning without having that blame taking place. Mm-hmm. So it's possible for for a person when you get sick to say, "Well, um, it's not about saying what did I do to to get sick because we're all going to get sick." But uh, is there some meaning? Like, if my stomach is is the is the issue? Um, most people understand that you can swallow your anger a lot, and and you and you might develop some sort of stomach or intestinal problems. That's very traditional. People have been saying that for thousands of years. So that's worth thinking about. Uh, in other words, what what is the correlation between my physical symptoms and the life I'm leading? It's not to say that I'm guilty in some way and I should shape up and live a better life. Because we all get sick, you know, we all we all have. It's part of human life, so there's no the po- there's no point in blaming anybody or feeling blame. The point is to take an interest in yourself and see how body and soul connect. Yeah, absolutely. So, so looking again, you said the body is the soul. So, looking again as to the soulful connection between 
what your body is presenting to you as information gives it meaning rather than saying you shouldn't be sick. That's right, exactly. I think I gave the example in the book, I mean, because I remember it so well, of a young woman who came to me as a teacher. I was a teacher then uh, many years ago and told me about that, uh, her sore throats, that she had chronic sore throats, and she said that she felt as though there was broken glass in her throat. And that was quite a strong image, I thought. So we talked about the broken glass and what it would be, first of all, was what was broken. And then secondly, uh, all that sharpness that she felt in her throat. And uh, immediately all kinds of, of uh, memories from the past came rushing forward because she, could, she was right next to them. It's just that she never had made the connection between her, her throat and what was going on. This is not to say that this was an absolute solution, this was the meaning of her illness, but it was a process of trying to explore illness in relationship to the way you've lived. And, and you can do that. I mean, she didn't blame herself. I didn't blame her for anything. I didn't expect her to live better or anything like that. It was just uh, taking an interest in your own health and saying, well, maybe there's something going on there that I could look at. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So we can find meaning in illness just like we can find meaning in anything else, but it doesn't have to uh, fall down or be reduced, I would say, to to self-recrimination. No, and if you do that, you, you know, if you if you start recriminating yourself, what you're doing is, it really is kind of protection. You're protecting yourself from looking at things that it may be a bit scary. Mm-hmm. I think that's the issue. So uh, it might be better to, to actually face some of the things going on in your life than to blame yourself for your illness. And if you could see that by blaming, you're avoiding the discussion where you actually get some insight. Yeah, absolutely. And on the other side of that, when we look at the caregiver, you talked a little bit about um, the distance between the caregiver and the patient becoming so far apart that there, it leaves room for power issues to unfold. And yes. you spend a lot of time talking about power issues. So I want to talk about that a little bit too, because I think that's one of the things that, this whole litigious uh, thing about medical care has come up, has come from is the idea that the doctor had all the power and now the patient wants to take back the power through litigation. So I want to talk right. about that a little bit. Right. Yes, uh, years ago I wrote a book uh, called Dark Eros, which is about sadomasochism in all ordinary relationships. Sadomasochism meaning say, the sadist part where you... Uh, you, you kind of want the power, and if people are going to be hurt, well, it's too bad. And the masochistic part, where we tend to, uh, to where we allow ourselves to be uh, to be shuffled around too much and uh, and hurt. So those issues are very uh, difficult, and they're very subtle. They come up in education, where teachers get you know too too p- p- powerful, and they actually come to the point where they physically hurt students. Um, the same thing with doctors and, and nurses and people in medicine. They're in a role where they, they are the healthy ones, and they're dealing with people who are totally in touch with their, their suffering. And so that sets it up right away to be a power play, a sadomasochistic situation. And so each side has to be very careful. The doctors and nurses have to be aware of their own capacity for illness, that they are not always healthy, and that they could be in that position any time and to identify more with the patients rather than to separate themselves from that patient. And the patient, too, has to realize that, uh, that getting sick doesn't mean that you, ha- that you just have to surrender to everybody around you telling you what to do, that uh, you, are, you are also a healer and you participate in the healing. 
And the more you do that, you, you tighten that split between the one who has power and the one who doesn't, between the healer and the one to be healed. And if you tighten that, that space between you, I think the whole process goes much better. Yeah, and that that makes me think of the issue of time as it applies to this too. Doctors are really very busy often, and and I just hear this so many times as clients come to talk to me. Well, I was going to ask the doctor about that, but I just thought he was so busy, and I just couldn't didn't couldn't do it. And when you talked about the patient being empowered to participate in the healing process. I thought about that, that that whole issue of time becomes power as well, does it not? Absolutely. I and mean, this is one of, the, one of the main means that a doctor has not to be engaged. They can say, well, I'm too busy. They can look busy. You know, mm-hmm. they, they can, uh, I don't think that for any of us really in this contemporary world that busyness is a very realistic situation. It's not, it's not usually terribly honest. Uh, it's easy to say, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, but we're making choices, and it's very easy not to be so busy. Uh, you know, I, I know any of us have that, uh, are in a situation where when people ask something from us, we can sneak out of it by saying, I'm busy. And people, what can people say? Well, well we know you're busy. And we know that certain people are, are busy more than others. But I think that's hiding a lot of times. And, um, as much as there is to do when you're a doctor, and I know that they're overwhelmed with things to do, um, that doesn't, that's not the same as being busy. Busy is doing things that don't mean too much. Uh, yeah, I, I always say that I've read people like Jung and Emerson and all these writers who wrote you know, 40 volumes of, of writings by hand uh, without a computer and all this kind of thing, and never once in their letters have I heard them, have I read that they were busy. They don't use that, that term. That's interesting. They never say, I'm busy. But today we all say we're busy. So I don't trust it. I don't trust the, the busyness. But I think you're absolutely right that it's used as a way of not being engaged in the work. I think it's because if you are really engaged, you've got to be a pretty strong person, someone of some depth in order to deal with illness. But that's why we respect you, and that's why we place, place you, you doctor, you nurse, whoever you are, in a very special position because you are dealing with life and death matters, and we honor that, just as we honor clergy and just as we honor psychologists. Right, absolutely. So in the, in the event where a patient is intimidated by that sense of busyness, uh, the recommendation would be just to plow on through and ask the question anyway. Yes, I would recognize it for what it is. And you might even even, even say to a doctor who's letting you feel that he's busy or she is busy, you could just say, look, I, I understand that you live a very full life. My recommendation is not to use the word busy. I mean, I avoid that myself. And my people ask me, how are you doing? I say, well, life is quite full these days. Yeah. <laughs> I just avoid the word busy because it's a key word. It doesn't mean what it says it means. And it, it's, it can be used very badly. So as a patient, I would say, look, I know, I know you have a lot to do, but I just like you to give me two minutes of, of attention so that I can uh, feel better about our process here. Absolutely, absolutely. I hope everyone out there is listening. This list, <laughs> writing that one down because it's hard to come up with that. You know, we make our list of questions and then, and that's not on the list. <laughs> that's right. Well, now the other thing, if I can board, uh, you know, uh, forge ahead here. Uh, well, we guess we have to go. Yeah, we're going to take a break right okay. now. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more from Thomas Moore. 
Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. America is facing a skilled workforce shortage. Skills USA can help. What is Skills USA? Skills USA is life changing. Skills USA is awesome. Skills USA is one of the biggest opportunities life can give you. Skills USA is amazing. Skills USA is motivating. Skills USA specifically prepares you for the workforce. Skills USA empowers students to connect with a network of people, starting with their classmates, to their advisors, to other people in their states. Skills USA allows students to connect with business and industry, to manage their education, and to really get a feel of the real world. I'm doing something now that's going to be applicable in the real world, and those skills are going to be useful today in school and in five years when I'm working and for the rest of my life. On the web at skillsusa.org. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. You live for the firsts in your child's life. But how do you cope with the firsts that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Well, it's sad but true, but we're on our final segment with Thomas Moore today, and I want to tell you there's just so much in this book, including uh, a sense of calling for healthcare workers and specific solutions to common problems in healthcare. So do read the book. I think you'll be really blessed by reading this book. So, but right now, what I want to do, Thomas, is ask you, if you will, to just uh, let our listeners know a little bit more about what you've got going on. Well, um, I am continuing to work with uh, with medicine and medicine, and work with doctors and hospitals. So I'm doing some consulting for hospitals, and going out and uh, trying to apply some of the ideas on on the site, and uh, also. Uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, I am beginning a three-part series with Sounds True uh, called um, uh, Dark Nights of the Soul. 
based on a book that I wrote of that name. So that's also relevant to what we were talking about here. And I will be uh, uh, talking with people for uh, three weeks running, so uh, every Thursday for the next three weeks. So that's something that can be found on my website, careofthesoul.net. Okay, so that's going to be an event, an online event, then. Yeah, it's an online event that begins tomorrow, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I think it should be very good, very rich. It sounds wonderful. It Mm -hmm. sounds wonderful. The book was very good, so I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. Okay, so I want to spend just a few more minutes at the at the end here talking about some practical ways that uh, we can bring the soul with us to medical care. One thing that I was going to say at the, just before the last break is that it's very helpful uh, to have somebody with you helping you if you're in a hospital or if you are going to get uh, what might be bad news or to uh, sometimes even just going to the doctor. Not just because you may not be physically able, but because you need some emotional support or you need uh, someone around who can hear uh, what the doctor has to say for, to you. A lot of times when we're anxious and there's a lot of lot going on around us, especially in a hospital, and people tell you things, you don't even know what they say. Later, afterwards, you say, what was all that? You know, what was all about? And also, when you're very sick, it's hard sometimes to deal with a big institution. So it's very helpful to have someone, maybe from your family or a close friend, who feels comfortable with the, those environments to speak for you and listen for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that sort of makes you feel safer and, and, and more grounded that this person is. Yes, and, you know, it's a, it is a very soulful thing to do. I've talked to many people who have done this. Uh, recently, just the other night, talking to a friend who went through major heart surgery, and a friend of hers came and stayed with her for three weeks to help her get through it. And she said it was, you know, she couldn't imagine having to go through that healing process without that friendship. And so it's not just having someone to steer you through the the technicalities of being treated, but also uh, there's something very soulful about having someone with you in these important times in life to share them in a very close way. Uh, there's a very, very ancient tradition, and it continues all the way down through history, that the most important thing in a soulful life is friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Those depths just can't be matched with poignancy. So what are some of the other things we can do beyond having an advocate and a friend to go through our, these ordeals with us? What, what are some of the other things we can do to bring the soul with us? Well, another way, there's a part of the soul that is, uh, has to do with our spiritual lives. So that's a big part that I write about quite a bit. And when I go into hospitals, I, I often talk to pastoral care people and to chaplains. They're doing a wonderful job in medicine. And hospice, too, has a very spiritual side to it, usually. Mm-hmm. So uh, many people have found that their whole process of healing is transformed by having people who are not trying to just go through the motions uh, with you know, the, a religious belief, but give you really deep spiritual help so you, you can find some meaning and some peace with what's happening to you. And, um, and having a spiritual point of view means that you are in a position where you can look for meaning in what's happening to you and find some comfort and find some strength. Because uh, uh, illness is also a spiritual thing. It, it puts you in touch with your mortalities, I keep saying. And it makes you think about the whole arc of your life and how it has all come together. Suddenly these thoughts come to you and uh, you need to put them in a place and find some meaning uh, for them so that um, even if you don't have a, you know, ultimately serious illness, at least 
uh, you're going through a rite of passage that's going to help you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things you say in the book is expressing the soul makes us eccentric. So in line of that, in that same vein, then it, if we're going to be soulful in under when we're in medical care, we have to know that we have to have do it our own way. We have to do it our own unique way. Yes, that's right. And that makes it a little bit risky sometimes, though, doesn't it? It does, but you know, I think I think it can be good. You don't have to do it in a in a forceful, aggressive, angry fashion. You you can do it with a sense of humor. I, I think that. Uh, the medical world, for all of its self-importance, uh, can laugh you know, and can, can see the humor in situations. And if a patient can laugh and can enjoy themselves uh, to some extent, that's really helpful. I remember visiting uh, several patients in, in hospitals, people I didn't know, that I was just you know, walking through the hospital to observing, and I would stop in and talk to them. And so often there would be a lot of laughter. And, uh, and I think that this is really helpful if, if you can have a sense of humor about it and the humor then is side by side with some firmness, so that you can say, "Look, this is what I need. Uh, I'm and maybe nobody else needs this, but I do. You know, um, I need some. I need some decent, fresh food, please." Uh, I tell the story in the book how I, I tried to get a fresh banana in a hospital, and it was impossible <laughs> because it wasn't part of the procedures. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, sometimes we really have to push for the simplest things. Mm-hmm. I remember I got the chance to be an advocate for a very dear friend that was going through surgery a couple of years back, and one of the one of the expressions of her soul that was quite eccentric and endearing was she had to have her socks on while she was going into surgery, and there were these special mm-hmm. socks that she wore and that she was mm-hmm. not going to take them off, and the nurse came to try to take them off, and I was like, no, 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 can't take those off. <laughs> She needs those. <laughs> yes, so, yes. So, no, I don't. Th- I, we forget that, uh, especially when we're treating people. We think of them all as just uh, human beings, maybe, or just bodies. But we don't think of people as individuals. Mm-hmm. That's why I think it's so helpful. I, when I visit people in hospitals, I ask them if I don't know them. I ask them, "What did you do for your, you know, in your life? What, what is your work? When you're outside the hospital, what do you do?" And suddenly they come alive because that's so precious to them, you know, their life and what they're, what they're doing. And a lot of times you go into a hospital and you set your life uh, off in a little cubicle and, you, and people forget that you have one. Absolutely. And I had another client who, who uh, had to have uh, care quite frequently and we had to talk about some of the things that she could take with her to the hospital to, to make her life there easier while she was there for her treatments and and uh, you know, uh, audio programs and and mm-hmm. um, you know certain pillows and things like that that are meaningful that just need to be taken. Absolutely, the small things uh, for the soul. Small things usually tend to be very big. Yeah, that's right. Well, Thomas, we hate to say goodbye to you today. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Well, as always, I really enjoy talking with you, Andrea. Well, thank you. And uh, next week we're going to be interviewing Don Clark uh, with regard to much of that's been going on recently about bullying of gays and lesbians. So stay tuned for that. He's the author of Loving Someone Gay. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is give birth to yourself.
Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week. 